The following is part two of a two-part podcast, so if you're interested in understanding what's going on, make sure that you're caught up on the previous part. Don't fundamentally change the system. Don't rock the boat. Tech will get better. Things are getting marginally better at a, at a rate. I won't say how quick that rate is. Well, don't, don't neglect the last thing the I said, though. The last thing I said was that policies... We, we have to assume that also policies won't become more aggressive. Now, I'd advocate for more aggressive environmental policies, right? But I would just say that um, those policies will probably end up happening uh, over time, right? That's And That's, to be fair, we none of, us could, none of us can say one thing or another. But what I would just, the last thing, one last sentence was just to say that with regard to, um, yeah, oh, fuck, what was, I, I forgot my last point was, fuck, you fucked I'm, me, Vosh. I'm sure it'll come back. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, go for it. No, we're gambling on the civilization. We can't, this is like, you. oh, well, the EPA's made great progress. We're at a position to reach just over half of the goal of the worst projected outcome scientists set, and maybe policies will change to make up the rest of the shortfall. Like, no, no, like, we're, you, we're, we're, we're yeah. barreling down a cliff right now. There's, there's no circumstance in which the system, as it is right now, this is tangential nope. because we're talking about worker democracy, but like, I think this speaks to a fundamental yeah. trust in institutions that liberals have that I don't. Like, we're, we're talking about the greatest like, apocalypse event that has ever definitely been projected to absolutely going to happen in all of human history. I mean, we're talking of global Mount Vesuvius, like a Pompeii to, to, to spread ash across the planet. And it's like, well, sure, Trump put like a coal lawyer on who wiped away a hundred regulations. Trump wouldn't even acknowledge the existence of climate change. And now we have Biden, a guy who can't get through any legislation to fix anything because the Senate is half controlled by Republicans who are all buddy buddies with Murdoch and all of his fuckwit coal and oil friends who all have a material financial incentive. And all of these politicians just happen to own stock in the corporations who they benefit. Like, it, like this, this system is so obviously broken. Like there's such an obvious link between capital ownership and political corruption and doing things that fuck the planet. Um, and I'm yep. not saying that like worker ownership is going to necessarily fix all of these issues, but like we're, we're, we're looking at the most like decrepit system imaginable and, and pontificating whether or not like we want to give democracy a chance. Can you imagine if the founding fathers had done that? Like, um, oh, you know, like we clearly monarchies are bad. So like maybe we should do like kind of a half democracy. Oh, they did. They only let landowning white men vote and they had slaves and it took us 200 years to fix that. I don't want to take 200 years to realize that the problem can't be solved with half measures the way they did. Like that's fundamentally, that's what you're talking about. There's always this hesitance to take that extra step. There are political and economic arguments. Maybe people don't want a full democracy because the average person isn't fully literate and it would assign to them responsibilities they can't handle. Maybe economically slavery is something, a necessary evil, that's a phrase that came up a lot, that we need to contend with, right? But they were wrong. Democracy was always the solution, and it was sustainable then as it is now. We can't always kick the can down the road. And in this case, we're not talking about millions of slaves dying every year. That's bad enough. We're talking about billions of people dying soon. And that's just one outcome. I think the fact that collaboration between capital owners leading to the propagation of client science misinfo is all the evidence one would need to scrap capitalism. But like... Even even in this shadow, you find hope, and it's a hope, it's a faith in institutions that I just don't have. I I can't, I I, I like I I don't know 
any regulation you put forward in the EPA can be rolled back by the next Republican to win. The next time they put a coal lawyer, any education platform you want to put through, all it takes is the next private school Betsy Davos billionaire appointed there to roll all of those back. As long as people whose material interests are different to the working class have the ability to seize political power, they will and they'll keep doing it. And they can undo work much faster than we can build things up because destroying is always easier than building. Yeah, I so this kind of does go into the next point. So I would just say that with regard to the whole environmental thing, um, my only my only reason for bringing up those types of those statistics, right, isn't to say that we're doing enough, right? It's 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 really to say the opposite to a certain extent, and then to the broader point that you're making, it's to say that your your broader point is necessarily not the best lens of analysis here. And I think that this is one of the fundamental problems I have with a lot of socialists, right? Which is that um, class interests enable and cause these things, right? These things exist because of these class interests, right? Um, and I think that you know, we wouldn't see any of the things that I just mentioned. We wouldn't see 60% of the way there by 2050 if that was like a broadly correct analysis. We'd see 0% of the way there by 2050 um, in general, right? It, it, my, my faith in the institutions that, you know, we, we have in society, the institution of sort of governing uh, democracy, the institutions of, you know, you could say the EPA is an institution, the institution of just the government in general um, is, is really based on a long history uh, and, you know, an empirical backing of the idea that it tends to be the case that when people vote for a certain thing um, that they, uh, or, or I'm sorry, apologies, when the median voter tends to want a certain thing, they tend to get uh, that certain thing in some form or another. It's not a perfect, uh, you know, system by any means. But I'm not the one saying that one system can all it can solve all of these issues. You know, you mentioned back uh, before in the debate that there are capitalist countries with coal workers and oil workers that have these sort of material interests that don't have the same problem with misinformation with regard to climate change. Again, I agree. Um, capitalist countries can, in fact, deal with that type of information through education campaigns, through things like, um, you know, uh, perhaps regulations on 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 certain topics and you know how, how you how you might go stairs. about that. Who runs the school? Who in America, yes, cabinet positions appointed by the president are the ones ultimately in charge, and they overwhelmingly choose people of the capital class to make those decisions. Even in those social well, again, democracies, you're, you're, by the way, like yeah, Norway, their welfare assistance have been getting gutted over the past few decades as well. Autocracy or not autocracy, sorry, austerity and economic liberalization have been hammering away at the um at the the Nordic democracies for a time now. Not as severely as what we have, but you will you'll guess it. It's capital owners doing it. Who's defunding the NHS in the UK? Capital owners. Every time it's them. You build up a castle and watch them tear it down. Because in any country, 99% of the people here are going to be workers. And the most powerful people will be the remaining 1%. And they will be the ones eventually to sink their claws into the systems that we not only use to generate power, but to reaffirm it. It's not enough that they have government. They All they have to do is buy one media company. Bezos bought the Washington Post. Like... And and the Washington Post has since published a number of things um, that are, uh, you know, um, let's say optimistic about the nature of billionaires. Was Bezos telling them to do that? Probably not. But we can never know. There's no way of knowing. And that's scary. That is genuinely concerning. These institutions at any time, and they're always the ones most likely to seize control of them because they have more power. If you're a billionaire, it's more likely you know these politicians, these other people. You can buy into them. Everything is up for sale. And the people capable of buying these systems just don't share the same interests as us. They don't have to. Yeah, but I think that fundamentally what you're getting at in that point is, you know, well, I, I suppose to go a little bit in order, I didn't write it down. I was looking something up. Um, you mentioned that 
you know, you, again, you, you talk about Trump putting a coal lobbyist uh, in the EPA or Betsy DeVos in the Department of Education. Um, you know, again, there, there's an ebb and flow here. I would never say that there's not. I'm really talking about the broad story of America and not, not just America, to be fair. I think it's easy for uh, socialists perhaps to look at America and, and say that capitalism itself is the problem um, when America is fairly unique in a lot of ways. Um, but just to say that I, I think that that narrative is is broadly true over time. Now, you might say that, well, it's not fast enough, right? We're not we're not reforming these these issues quick enough. Look at climate change. That's the best example, perhaps, that you can come up with. And, and to be fair, it probably is the best example. Um, but what I would say is that, again, I, I'm not sure you've properly responded to the idea that all of these material interests would still exist under a cooperatively run economy. They're, all of the incentives exist, you know, line for line. Um, and you talk about, you know, the last thing you mentioned that I'll, that I'll respond to is the idea that, you know, billionaires have an outsized influence. Look at that. Capitalism, right? Uh, billionaires being able to buy news media companies. I agree that that can be a problem, but the problem there isn't capital interest. It's not necessarily the capital class because these sort of class distinctions would still exist um, under a worker cooperative system. It's just that everyone would be a worker. There'd still be differences in income and wealth. These are the things that really, I think, uh, are potential uh, precarious uh, uh, sort of, they inject precariousness into some of these institutions. I agree. Um, you know, uh, income inequality is a problem, but um, taxes, government oversight, uh, uh, democratic government in general um, has shown to very effectively address income inequality and wealth inequality through taxation um, and through these sort of uh, reform uh, and welfare policies. You talk about welfare uh, programs being cut in uh, the Nordic countries. Um, some welfare programs have been cut some of the time, but the broad trend over time is that social spending is going up. Um, we don't see these institutions fundamentally eroding uh, over time. And, and it why? is because of the, it's because, well, last sentence, it's because of that democratic accountability that we agree with. I just think that um, government democratic accountability is good uh, enough. And I think that democratic accountability in the workplace is good. But I think that complete ubiquitous worker uh, democracy um, is not actually uh, good. I think that uh, rather we can have a, a you know a a, a a a a give and take here between capital and workers that is valuable, um, and I think that a completely democratic government has shown uh, to be fairly robust. That's definitely longer than one sentence. I'm sorry, but has shown a, a robust ability to address these uh, social ills uh, over time. We we will only take and we will not give. Uh, first of all, these social democracies are being eroded. And this give and take that you refer to is an interplay between increasing systemic inequality and general technological advancement. American wealth inequality has been increasing for a century since the New Deal. This is not a slowly increasing thing. Things have been getting worse for a hundred years. They've been getting worse and they will continue to get worse as long as we live in countries where capital owners are capable of making these political decisions. It was capital owners who lobbied, capital owners who wrote those bills, capital owners who brought them to the heads um, of the parties, capital owners that sat them down, capital owners that voted on them, capital owners that promoted everything, always. And the vast majority of the population is the one that suffers the, the outcomes of these events. Every time, we, it, like, we, we talk like things are always getting better, like how? The, the issue is you want a monarchy. You want to make life better for the serfs without getting rid of the king. You say, well, we don't really have an issue with the king necessarily. We can find ways to have social democracy. We can find ways to have, you know, high like rates of, uh, you know, education and literacy and such. But the problem with monarchs is that they don't let you do that. It's, it's not enough to pontificate. I think if anything, your system is the idealist one. Like mine is the realistic one. You're talking about building a dam uh, while the river continues to flow. I'm talking about stopping the river. 
you're talking about building a system antithetical to the interests of the capital class while the capital class are still in charge of everything. And I'm saying we don't need them. We can build alternative systems. I have responded to these points. What the differences are in material interest. Transparency makes a critical distinction, as does internal accountability. How likely a whistleblower is to be fired, how much you can speak out without being quietly shunned from the industry. Um, and additionally, you'd be advocating only for the interests of your business, not for the capital class as a broader institution, which they consistently do. Which is why you see, of course, members of the capital class always act in tandem. I say always here, of course, I'm exaggerating, but they overwhelmingly do. They have class interests. They're class conscious. They know what they're doing. They know what they want. They know what their interests are. They disagree sometimes on cultural issues, but like, if you take a look at like the ultra wealthy in this country, you will not see a representative split of different political like beliefs, you know? You're not going to see the same like 30-40-30 red independent blue split that you would get down the line for the average working person. You're not going to see the same split on tax issues or on landowning issues or in anything related to workers or regulation or anything like that, you know? There is clearly a distinction. That is true. There are countries that are capitalist um, that don't have all the problems that we have here in America, but they have some of them. And other countries that aren't America have problems that we don't have. And it's always the same group responsible. I, just because all problems aren't present everywhere doesn't mean there isn't a shared cause. We can fix it, but we have to work in the absence of the uber-powerful group of people who want the opposite of what the average citizen wants. We need to get rid of the ability to grow powerful through ownership. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, when I say you haven't responded, what I, obviously I mean you, you, you said things that were, in, were countering what I'm saying. I, obviously that's true. I'm just saying that I'm not sure it, we, 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 we've, we've fully connected the two. You know, the idea that um, being able to buy ownership in a company causes all these uh, problems, the idea that there wouldn't be the same sort of uh, sort of similar class distinction, obviously, if we're talking in a, you know, sort of socialist or, you know, maybe Marxian sense, you know, the, the strict definition of bourgeois versus worker, there would not be that distinction. But again, there would still be these uh, wealth distinctions. You know, you talk about worker cooperatives as a much. means to perhaps alleviate some of this inequality. Um, I think that, um, you know, worker cooperatives have been shown to alleviate some amount of firm level inequality, um, you know, 15, 25% of it maybe. Um, but we're not talking about this huge amount, uh, this incredible reduction of inequality because of the cooperative Wait, organization. Hold on. Um, and I would just say... Wait, 15 yeah, to 20% how? Because the difference between average pay of a worker and a CEO and a co-op is fractionally smaller than the difference in the average pay of a traditional worker and traditional CEO. Yeah, the, the the analysis that I saw was comparing, uh, you know, re apologies. The, the analysis that I saw was comparing like to like, right? It was comparing similar cooperatives to similar traditionally managed firms. Now, uh, obviously, if, if you don't want to talk empirics, that's fine, but it's going to be pretty difficult for you to. We we would have to just imagine the empirics because there's not been like a broad amount of. Uh, you know, I, I suppose there's not been a broad amount of, uh, you know, large cooperatives that have been adopted literally uh, anywhere, um, even in the most sort of cooperatively dense uh, regions in the world. Um, but in general, what they've shown is that there's still a, a relative amount of inequality um, within those types of systems. Now, and that's my only point, really, with regard to a lot of the points that you just made is that um, I agree that there's precariousness with income inequality. Income inequality has a lot of uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, extrapolations uh, from it that are negative uh, for society. My only point would be that taxes and uh, democratic government have shown an ability to tackle 
that issue, um, one of the books that I read, I might be interpreting this graph wrong to be fair, has shown that income inequality based on several indices has actually been flat uh, over time. Um, and between a country inequality, right, the relative sort of inequality between country A and B has actually been uh, decreasing since 1990, right? And so, you know, th those are valuable statistics because I think what it shows is that, um, you know, you might say that inequality in country A or B might be going up or down, but I'm talking about the broadest possible trend, the broadest samplings that we have. Um, it's been relatively static or decreasing uh, over time, uh, talking about in-country versus out-of-country inequality. And I think that every study that I've looked at has shown that taxes are a, a valuable way to address uh, that inequality. Um, and they don't, well, you might say that they're motivated and why they don't recommend this. They don't typically recommend worker cooperatives as a means to solve that issue because taxes have a more aggregative effect. Um, they're more efficient probably than implementing this type of structure. Um, they're more redistributive in nature. Um, and honestly, they probably just straight up lead to um, more directly less inequality than worker cooperatives because there's still not a distinction between non-workers and workers, workers at cooperative A versus B. If you get a flat benefit, you get a flat benefit. If you're taxed, you're taxed, right? Um, and you might argue for those same systems. I'm just saying that those systems seem to effectively address the problems that you're talking about. Um, whereas I'm not sure, you, obviously you cannot demonstrate that worker cooperatives would solve these issues. We can only sort of uh, speculate, but I, I give you that, that that's, you know, that's probably an advantage in my favor, not in yours, but that's not because I've done any extra work in that regard. That's just how it is. Um, but in general, though, I just, I just don't think that you've presented, I don't think you've presented to me a convincing reason why um, these problems um, empirically haven't been able to be solved um, or in the future could not be solved under a democratic, but also um, a democratic government framework with a capitalist uh, economic framework, especially when, again, I feel like we also haven't gotten an adequate response to the idea that um, the transparency benefits, which seems to be a lot of the things that uh, you're, you're sort of hinging on, you know, these sorts of benefits, the, you know, the worker, um, you, you know, worker board membership unionization, that why we couldn't solve those types of issues with worker board membership and unionization. You keep talking about class interest and, 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 and the interest itself, but I'm breaking down that class interest. I think similarly to you are, I'm just trying to use tools that have been proven to be effective, um, not ones uh, that necessarily haven't been proven to be effective um, on an aggregate level. I think a mandate is where you end okay. up running into all these problems. So a few things. First of all, Go for it. income inequality is at very high levels. Global income inequality might have decreased because the aggregate is averaging out. Industrialization in developing countries is bringing them up a little bit more to par in a sort of relativistic way. In terms of like relative wealth inequality in this country, it is historically high. I know there's some variable fluctuation there, but you're talking about it. It's like basically the worst like in human history. No, 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 but, but can, let, wait, wait, let me wait, jump in. Some of the stuff that you said is just, like, isn't true. You saying that okay. there's a 15 to 20% decrease in inequality from like firms to like firms. The average ratio of pay from a worker to a CEO in America is one to 400 or so. Co-ops have nowhere near that. They're not 15% lower, which I think would be what, 345 or something, three, three something. They're not 20% lower, which would be like 320 to one. They're massively lower. I don't know what metric would be used for that, but obviously whatever kind of worker cooperative I would advocate for would have a fairly flat income level. Also, nothing I'm talking about here is in any way antithetical to a good tax policy. Um, they're, you know, com completely compatible with each other. Um, the issue is like, you're asking me, why can't my systems work? I ask you, why haven't they been implemented? I acknowledge the reason why my big mandate hasn't happened yet is because it's against the interests of the most powerful people on earth. We must force them to do it. However necessary, we must force them to. But what you're suggesting is that within the system, through incentive and through, you know, um, management, like we should 
we should advocate for what this, you know, worker controls half, you know, higher tax rates. Well, then why isn't that happening? Every country on earth in the West right now, developing uh, capitalist countries, developed capitalist countries, where is this, this tremendous uh, social democracy then? We had some of them because there was a post-war boom and we saw when manufacturing was done locally. And usually, of course, you know, you have countries that have disproportionately um, uh, a good welfare states. There's usually some kind of internal economic supplement. Norway has their oil, of course, the social wealth fund. Uh, Sweden has been gutted over the past 40 years. The UK was never that good to begin with. And now capital interests are selling off bits of the NHS. I'm pointing to a system, a series of problems. And you're asking me where the evidence is that they're causing the problem. The capital owners are as inseparable from the problems of today as the monarchs of the 14th century European kingdoms were. You cannot remove them. You cannot give them half power. The Magna Carta did not end monarchy. And keeping slavery in a democracy does not fundamentally address the necessary co-balance between economic needs and the right to, people, um, to people's ownership of the systems they live within. You have to cut the problem off at the head, metaphorically. With this... <laughs> We t metaphorically in a video game, we, we, t we talk about in these systems, game. right, of course, but like we live in a ludicrously inequitable system, climate disaster, which is undeniably caused by um, the behavior of either the capital class or those um, those directly linked to it um, uh, is, 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 is barreling down at us. Um, it, I, I just don't understand. He, like, here are the counter arguments to me, right? Um, we might yep. have some difficulty acquiring uh capital invest or like proper investment structures when you have this big cooperative mandate like that's it you know worker cooperatives are quite effective in some respects and neutral in many others we don't seem to have a lot of information suggesting they're like distinctly worse in fields which is why i advocate for more testing research we have to get more data um we um it, it's it's it, and my my arguments against you here are that Every problem that we suffer right now is directly tied to one particular group of people. And the reason they're able to propagate these issues is a direct product of the nature of the class relationship between them and working people. There is a huge difference between an owner of a corporation and a person who is a worker who is elected to its top. There is an incredible difference between those two things. And we know that because we know there's a difference between an authoritarian and a democratic government. There are corporations that have more employees right now than some small city states did back in, you know, the Middle Ages. And we can see perfectly well um, then that there were consequences to autocratic management. I just, I don't see how these transpose. It's a kind of economic conservatism. The belief that, oh, democracy was a fine experiment then, but well, now we're done with it. I don't see why we should be done with it, especially when the arguments against my position are essentially uh, capital um, acquisition might be difficult. You know, we can work on ways to handle that. I still think that non-controlling shares would be a fine solution if you just got rid of the stock market. We've done it before. It's not like we couldn't do it again. And And on your side, it's like, well, the EPA is doing fine, you know, we'll invent new technology to fix climate change, like, 
every developed country on earth could have had like a good like social welfare system this whole time but for some reason they don't have it it has nothing to do with the capital class running the media and running the government like you understand it's it's it, this isn't and this isn't a product of conspiracy you know these people wear it on their chests you vote for a politician you know perfectly well which corporations they used to work on the board of you know perfectly well who they're friends with because we have transparency it's a democratic country we wouldn't know if it was some you know um fully authoritarian shithole uh, another benefit there i think um, it's not conspiracism. We've gotten rid of political classes before. We eliminated the monarchy. I don't, I think this is a realistic approach. We must block off the water before we can build the dam. Yeah. So yeah, to, to respond to a little bit of these points, I think, I think we get into, um, well, yeah, just go into it basically. So, um, you talk about, you know, why hasn't your system been implemented? Where, where is this sort of worker, uh, you know, social democracy, worker democracy that I'm talking about? Um, you know, almost every country in Europe has worker board membership, sectoral bargaining, um, you know, relatively robust workers' rights and, and, and representation uh, with regard to disputes between uh, them and, and capital owners. Um, and not to mention, like I said, a seat at the table if they have worker board membership and, and unionization. So, I mean, you know, again, you mentioned previously in this debate that not all countries have the problem with, you know, climate denial, as an example. You mentioned not all countries have the same problems um, everywhere, but that doesn't mean there isn't sort of a broad apparatus of issues. Well, I, I do think it's sort of, um, it, it, it's weird because I feel like you're, it's almost like you're using the holes in the narrative to to, to prove the narrative itself, right? Um, that that doesn't mean that there's necessarily not a broad uh, sort of uh, apparatus uh, of issues in this regard. Um, I think it actually does disprove that. I think what it proves is that a capitalist system under a regulatory framework that's democratically decided, um, in fact, does have uh, a, a heck of an ability to uh, determine the flows uh, of society and and where we move. Um, I oh. think you get into a straw man. Uh, well, exactly. That's what I was about to mention. You know, I think you get into a straw man of my argument when you talk about how, um, you know, your your oh, uh, action's not really required. The environmental policy's fine, right? The EPA's great. These welfare pr programs are doing just fine. Um, unequal exchange, whatever. You know, we'll reform out of it. Why don't they have their welfare? They'll get it eventually. Um, I'm not actually saying that. I'm saying we actually do need a fair amount of policy to address these things. What I'm defending is the why, idea that wait, policy wait, wait. itself. Yeah, why would that policy get passed? So I would argue that that policy would get passed. Well, when you say that policy, there's a broad set of things I just mentioned. Those policies, I think, in general would get passed if people, apologies, if people generally uh, would support them and vote for representatives to do so. Um, I think that I've adequately responded to the idea that people are just simply almost like cogs in a machine, just manufactured consent all the way to the but, moon. Again, we wouldn't see, well, just one second, we wouldn't see any of... died off here in America? Well, well, I can't, but what you're saying is demonstrably yeah, wrong. Like it's not. It, no, it, it, it is like th what people know about these complicated economic issues is going to be supplied to them from powerful institutions. Unions objectively made people's lives better here in the States. And now union membership is at record lows. Clearly, there's not a correlation, at least not a strong one between. Actually, I will say this. There is a correlation between what voters want um, and what gets voted in, but there doesn't seem to be a correlation always between what's good for voters and what gets voted in because people want the right to work, right? I mean, people want a lot of things that end up being pretty bad for them, right? Because all the, the media promotes it. They say it's fine. The Republicans come out there and they say, you know, Democrats are doing socialism by doing infrastructure bills, you know, like in, in this environment, entirely fueled by capital interests, like, like clearly it's not like Europe sucks. They're like marginally better. They have cooler buildings, I guess. Like, oh. is, is that the win? Like, they're they're barely any better than we are. They're like ten years down the line uh, from where we are, I guess. Maybe. I really disagree. I, I I but hold on, no, I, I I really disagree with a lot of the the premises stated here. So, 
I think that um, with, with regard to union membership, right, in the United States, you know, I think we peaked out about 30, 40%. I don't, even, I don't think it was 30%. I think it was around 30% unionization back in the 70s um, was about where the United States peaked out. Now we're about down to 10%. Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, and you, and to be fair, like, obviously, I, I hear you maybe Googling it. Google it. I, I think that that is the, the correct uh, answer. Um, and to be fair, that is a decrease, right? Going from 30% to 10%. Now we've got about half of people represented by public unions and private unions have sort of gone away. You know, that is a problem, but I'm not sure that's a problem that necessarily is borne out in every single country. Um, in a lot of countries, union membership has declined, but, you know, for instance, in uh, Europe, they don't have right to work laws in Europe, right? You're not, uh, oftentimes you're not, or I'm sorry, they have basically the equivalent of right to work laws in uh, Europe, right? From what I was able to do, and I'm happy to be corrected on that. That's just what I was able to read was that um, there's a similar sort of ability to not actually do, uh, you know, basically be a part of a union, but work at a company in European countries as there is in many uh, GOP run states today. It's not to say that right to work is good. It's just to say that the propensity for an economy to um, really broadly adopt unionization is probably less dependent on the relationship fundamentally between capitals and capital owners and workers. And it's probably more so based on how stringent government policy is, how transparent the democratic structure of their government is, um, and, uh, you know, how, the frankly, just policy. So as I've said throughout this entire time, I think that it was, what is, well, really quick, the, the last thing that I was going to respond to, and I'll, and I'll respond to that uh, after this, is that um, I don't think we could say that, you know, the, the, I don't think we could say that the people of the Nordic economies or like Western Europe face a, a marginally better circumstance than the United States. There is a heck of a, of a difference between the workers of America and the workers of those countries, what they face and what we face. Um, I think there is a big difference there. Now, with regard to your question, who controls, who sort of determines how that policy gets passed? Um, you know, initially the voters do, right? I think that, again, there is evidence that pretty much the median voters' uh, wishes are often represented or pretty much always represented in government. There's a, there's actually a specific analysis released that um, analyzed voter preferences with regard to welfare spending specifically, almost like the exact question that we're talking about. And what it showed was that in the short run, um, you know, political parties and like party interests can have um, some effects, right? Similar to what we're both saying here, that sometimes you might see welfare spending decrease. You might see the NHS get cut. You might see social assistance be scaled back, right? So whatever it might be, um, you might see social security get scaled back, right? But what it also found was that over the long run, voter preferences essentially entirely dictated welfare spending um, in the country. Um, and I don't think that uh, it's, 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 I don't think one, it's been demonstrated that this manufacturing consent issue is broadly true. The narrative makes sense, but I think that there's a lot of uh, dynamics at play that are hard to account for. And then I, I, I don't think we can say that just because we don't have capital owners, all of these same incentives that Chomsky would talk about wouldn't necessarily exist. Now, I don't want to speak for Chomsky. Frankly, he'd probably obviously uh, disagree with me. I'm not sure what he would say in this regard, but all of those things, we went line by line on manufacturing consent. Every single one of those things would still apply to a market socialist system. And the transparency gains of, uh, you know, of, of, of cooperative ownership would still uh, exist with okay. worker board members. Worker board members would have all of the same rights to company information um, and management processes as any other uh, member of the board. So I, I think that uh, there's there's a lot of holes in this narrative, and I don't think that we can say definitively that capital owners need to be excised uh, from the system. You're right. Now, the last thing I was going to say, I keep saying that. You, you do is keep that saying right. that, yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I swear to God, just cut me off in two sentences. Okay. Um, you're right that um uh fuck i forgot go on go for it i forgot what i was gonna say <laughs> uh okay there's no holes in the narrative at all unions make life better for workers business owners lie about unions destroying their businesses as they have complained about every kind of regulation and countermeasure against businesses for hundreds of years 
they go to the news stations, those narratives are promoted, people vote in people with austere or opposite economic interests. The common strategy right now, actually, is don't directly address the economic issues, but shoot any of them down by saying that they're woke, tie them to cultural issues. Who was it, Josh Hawley, who said that Biden's Build Back Better plan was too woke because it would address climate change, and climate change is for pink-haired social justice warriors? Like, and, and, you know, if you take a look at who Josh Hawley is buddy-buddies with and how much money he's got, every time, man, listen, Europe is not that much better off than we are. They get, like, healthcare. They're a capitalist country. They're capitalist countries. The welfare state has been dismantled in Sweden and in the process of dismantling. Um, Denmark is not that good for poor people, though they have expanded benefits for their shrinking middle class. The UK was never that great, and the NHS has been torn up. And there is a direct relationship between austerity politics and the voters' interests. You see this with the Blairites back when they were doing their labor run in the UK. They talk about the need to tighten our belts, and people start voting as though money isn't something the government can literally print. And then all of a sudden you have all these welfare programs cut. The Grinsfeld Tower, uh, you know, burnt because, um, uh, uh, you know, the fat, like, what was it? Thatcher deregulated the system by which these buildings were like overseen. And then you had them cheaping out on like the insulation material and then it all caught fire or whatever. Like there are, there are direct consequences, immediate consequences to, to this, um, this this promotion and what i'm talking about right now is not like some crazy big brain socialist like idealist take or whatever this is like very straightforward application of basic like um not even theory just like what the media does the media promotes interests that are beneficial to the media the people in charge of the media have a disproportionate weight on what they consider their interests to be they're overwhelmingly wealthy capital owners so if they're buddy buddies with other wealthy capital owners they form collaborative narratives that end up benefiting them if you take a look at like news media over the past century you will find a litany of misinformation promoted by business interests not just for the individual business though for all businesses, a constant attack on labor and labor rights, on regulation, on workplace enforcement, on the ability for workers to regulate or to manage or to whistleblow, constant. And if and if 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 there was true democracy, if these you know the news was news and people were voting in favor of their own interests, we would have like ninety eight percent union representation right now. Hyperbolic, but I'll go with it. You know, the, the, all these issues, like if people really voted for what they wanted and what they wanted was really good for them, we would have socialized healthcare empirically better than what we have here in the States. We would have full union participation. We would have like a litany of workers' right laws that we don't have. But the history of workers' rights in this country is a history of blood. Everything from banning child labor to uh, establishing a five-day work week to overtime is something people fought for and they fought against people. They fought against business owners who sent the government in Pinkertons. They fought against planes that bombed their mining camps. The idea that this class antagonism went from literal bloodshed to, oh, it's just a trade relationship, you know? Oh, we're just, but we both have opposite interests and we negotiate to find what's mutually beneficial is ridiculous and it's naive. That is not what happened. Things got less explicitly violent in the States. We kill plenty of people abroad, Coca-Cola, death squads, Columbia, et cetera, et cetera. The fundamental relationship mm -hmm. has maintained its, um, uh, uh, you know, severity. It's just gotten quieter. And we have to, we can't pretend that's not the case. It's always them. It's always the capital owners. I feel I've addressed the, how would things be different under a cooperative thing? Uh, if, if you disagree, that's fine. I, I'm working from a position right now 
where I feel like there's a very strong historical incentive to do away with this class as we did away with the monarchy. Um, and and the, 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 the obstacle that I have to overcome is let's sort out the, the investment thing, you know? And I feel like that's a pretty easy hurdle to get over. Cooperatives still preserve the fundamental productivity of the enterprise. All the money still exists. The money hasn't gone anywhere, you know? People can loan um, money as banks or credit unions if they want, or if they want to do a proper investment, there are non-controlling shares. You can put in so and so much money and hope that it ends up being worth more in the long run. Um, it, it, these systems work, you know? And maybe right now those aren't attractive because why invest in a non-controlling share when controlling shares are the norm? But, you know, why uh, hire um, regular workers when you can hire undocumented people? You pay one third under the table. Why hire like a white man when you can hire a slave to work your plantation? You know, why have like, you know, paid freemen when you can use serfs? Like that's always the question, isn't it? It's always going to be more efficient to exploit. But we fix that by killing the people who exploit. Uh, uh, full stop. <laughs> Metaphorically. <laughs> Metaphorically. <laughs> yes. Yes. In a video game. Um yeah, I think um, I, I get what you're saying. I think again, to, to I, I think that what you haven't responded to in this regard is is you know is the empirical argument, right? I think that this is where I, I, the, the narrative really starts to deconstruct itself, right? Um, you know, you, you talk about you know, again, I, I I do say the narrative makes sense, right? It's just the empirics that tend to tend to you know kick kick out of the, kick the narrative out of out of being factual, right? So you know, for instance, you talk about. Uh, the NHS being cut, sort of, you know, vaguely the NHS is being cut. Not that it's not. You haven't referenced anything specific. You talk about the same thing in, in Sweden. Again, you know, broadly, these societies have increased social welfare over time, right? You haven't how responded so? to the idea that there's, there's, how so? Well, I mean, part of it is, a lot of it is increased uh, retirement spending for elderly people. A lot of it is increased healthcare spending as well. A lot of it's an expansion of unemployment. Uh, benefits, right? What have you? Um, it's also hard uh, because some societies, like you know, you might look at uh, like the Netherlands or recently. As a well, again, you're putting so many caveats. So you as a percentage of GDP, me, the answer is you chastise me for being vague, but that's important. If we go back a hundred no, 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 years, I, then yes, the welfare states expanded since then. But I mean, well, given, I just I just gave several examples, though. I mean, and I also I, when I say caveats, 80s? what I mean is like. Like the 80s was when like well, the whole neoliberal yes. like austerity, you know, deregulate, you know, cut, cut, cut thing really kicked into yeah. into shape. So I'm just making sure we're operating at a proper time frame here. I know Sweden's has significant, you know, cuts. Yeah. I know the NHS has. I know Denmark's had some weird shifts. Um, yeah, since the answer is that the answer is yes, since the 80s, as a proportion of our economy, we tend to, you know, distribute more in terms of taxation and also spend more in terms of social spending. Um, and when I say putting caveats, I, you, you talk about recently, it depends on your window, obviously. Um, recently, obviously, we've we've spent a shitload more money on, on social welfare because of COVID. Um, I'm not sure if you'd give me the credit in that regard, but that is, you know, that is broadly true. It's 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 absolutely true that we've spent a lot more on social welfare, um, you know, the most recently that we can look at. Um, you know, and again, you, you might have a, a socialist analysis for why we would do that. I'm not really sure. Um, you know, in general, though, I, I would just agree that some power. of these... Well, I think that it does, though, right? Because if you have a generous welfare state to fall back on and your boss is treating you like shit, you know, you absolutely have the ability to say, you know, no, frictionally, I'm going to unemploy myself so that I can get on this welfare, get another job, right? Um, it's the same reason why people would say that a UBI would increase the negotiating power of workers because they have more of an income backdrop to negotiate to with their, these their workers. they afloat. I mean, we had the PPP loans, of course, but also the main reason why, like, a, a bunch of these COVID, like, um, supplementary, like, welfare things took place 
um, was simply because it's necessary for maintaining basic economic functionality. That's what we're talking about right now, you know? Uh, the CDC no, cut no, no, the... No, 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 uh, I know, and I, I, yeah, I don't want to get into... Because with COVID, that, so I, I that's agree, not, you, you, that's not you, you probably wouldn't give me credit. Yeah, yeah, it no, doesn't no, give I, us more power again, again, of, of the world, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I said I, I agree, you, you probably wouldn't give me credit on, the, on a, all the social welfare spending related to COVID, right? That's why I'm just saying that if it depends on your time frame. If you're talking 80s, 90s, the answer is yes, we spend as a proportion of our economy more on social welfare since then. And when I say we, I mean in aggregate. Again, you can probably look at specific countries that have made reforms that spend less, um, but then I would probably just appeal to perhaps quality of life. We can take a more contextual analysis if you want, um, but we're having a broader discussion. So I'm not sure it makes sense to look at specific countries when we're having a broader discussion about the entire mode and means of production of our society, right? Um, I don't think it makes sense at that point to say, um, you know, look at the UK cutting their welfare spending. Right, that's an example, or cutting their NHS spending. Right, that's an, that's a reason why we need to get rid of capital um, interest. Those are decent enough examples, but I don't think that they're good enough to overcome the broad empirical truth that social spending has indeed uh, increased. Um, and you know, you, the last you know, even, the last thing you talked thing, about just, is just one yeah, thing. Go on. Keep in mind, social spending isn't the goal for me. It's worker control. Um, even a system in which you had a perfect yeah. welfare state, which was you could like like I said, you could have a country which is a monarchy with no democracy, where you have a perfect welfare state, and I would still hate that country. Democracy is non-negotiable. You can have a welfare well, state that doesn't you, confer control to the working class. Sometimes it can placate them. That's kind of a common like yeah. cyberpunk theme. Well, but, but you said earlier in the debate, though, that you actually didn't believe that, right? As far as I understood, the way, what you said earlier in the debate was that if it could be proven that this society would be so materially worse off, you actually wouldn't, you'd probably shift your beliefs at that point. Is, is that not true or is that true? Like society collapsing. How, oh, out of curiosity, how bad, how non-functioning would democracy have to be for you to want to live under like a, a you know, like a Kazakhstan or like a Saudi Arabian type government? Like how much better would they, like if, for mm -hmm. instance, if they could provide like, a greater proportion of their national budget towards um, welfare stuff on a, in accordance with, um, yeah. you know, a, a greater efficiency conferred through authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And they also had a more robust economy. Would you prefer that? Uh, no, I wouldn't, because I, I do fundamentally value democracy and civic society, right? I'm just, the reason I asked you the question is because it seems like you're making contradictory statements where you're saying, on one hand, you're saying, you know, I don't give a shit how perfect a society is without democracy, I would still want democracy. But then in the, in the beginning of the debate, you said, I actually very much give a shit how, how like materially wealthy society is, so I might not actually be in favor of work of democracy if it could be proven that it was so bad. If it's so these, an these statements seem to be but there's totally no evidence contradictory. Well, there's, I, I said if there's an enormous distinction, just that it's not my focus. Yeah. Right now, there's no evidence of any distinction because worker cooperatives either outperform traditional firms or, in a lot of cases, they simply no. perform like neutrally. Um, it's like very, no, 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 very I, I get that. I, I, and, and I would appeal to the empirical argument as well, but I'm saying you, you didn't make empirical arguments on either end of the debate. You, you said principally, I do believe in democracy. I don't care how like materially well off a monarchist system is. Um, but, but then at the beginning, you said principally, I believe in democracy, but only up to a certain point. And the, these things don't seem to, can you explain the distinction or, or do you want to amend one of the statements? I mean, if you, if you had like a, if there was a system or a set of material conditions where you could have democracy, but it would mean everyone's like, you know, killing dogs for scrap to, to eat in like a, <laughs> sure, in like yeah. junkyards or whatever. Like, I guess, I, I guess like a strong man who could make everything right might be an appealing like idea right then. But I don't think that's the divide we're dealing with. I'm only saying that there's a difference between worker control which is what I care about. And I think that will necessarily ferment benefits. Like the system I'm advocating for right now is 
capable of doing everything you're advocating for, and I don't think there are any downsides to the implementation of my system over yours, and we get to get rid of the bourgeois in my system. Because everything you say we could do with half board membership or, you know, whatever parcel, half measure or whatever, you could certainly do under my system because I'd be far more aggressive about it. But you can also fix mm -hmm. problems that you couldn't, problems I'm ascribing to the bourgeois as a class, which I imagine categorically you're going to disagree with due to a different ideological framework. But I think that looking at history yeah. and looking at the world today, there is extremely strong evidence that the history of the world is a history of class struggle and that the easiest and best way to resolve the antagonisms brought about by that conflict is to make sure there is only one class, the working class. And that should be the uh, only controlling group of, uh, of any country, uh, a proletarian state. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I, you know, I, I think that um, outside of, you know, what I would say, the last thing that I would say, and perhaps it's a good, it's a good uh, stopping point for the debate, because we might be going in circles at this point, um, would be bit. to say that, yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. It's, I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, the last thing that I would say in this regard is that um, I, I would actually say the exact same thing about your system, right? Is that, you know, all the benefits conferred by your system, I think would be solved uh, for in my system. I think that if you actually appeal to the historical um, uh, you know, analysis and argument. I think that what we do see um, is that uh, there is oftentimes conflict between capital owners uh, and workers. Um, however, uh, there's there's oftentimes conflict with regard uh, to trade. I think that this is an example that um, kind of underpins the way that I view um, the relationship between capital and owners. Um, it's a trade, right? Uh, workers are trading um, part of their surplus labor value um, for ease of access to capital uh, for a higher wage than they'd probably otherwise be able to garner if they did it on their own, if they started their own business. It is a trade. Now, that's not to say that trade can't be coercive. Of course, trade can be coercive, right? If the United States says, you know, hey, Bermuda, uh, I'm going to nuclear bomb your island unless you give me all of your money, right? That's obviously a coercive relationship, but that's where rules are in place to try and prevent that type of incredible coercion uh, from happening in the first place. Um, I think coercion fundamentally is uh, some sort of a problem with trade relationships and with the relationship oftentimes between workers and employees. There can be coercion, there can be uh, monopsony power there, there can be market failures there. But I think that what's been proven over time uh, is that uh, not only are typically institutions strengthening over time, um, they're strengthening because of the, of the democratic say uh, that uh, individual people have in their governments. Governments have proven an ability to regulate these types of things, right? Um, I think that if, if broadly it was true, your narrative, um, on one hand, we've got you know this this powerful uh, capitalist class that's able to um, basically manufacture consent, control the government, control the government. Um, on one hand, this is true, um, but then on the other hand, we've got all of these systems um, not only being funded more than they were otherwise, not only having more redistribution, oftentimes higher tax burdens over time, because not only has social uh, spending gone up, so has taxes as a percent of GDP, right? So why would the capitalist class allow this massive redistribution of wealth uh, not only to happen but to increase uh, over time? Um, and I think that. If you appeal to history, um, that is what you get. Um, and that's why I'd advocate for my system. I feel like your system has the downsides that I mentioned of this sort of structural finance problem, economic growth, probably economic mobility as well. Um, but my system has uh, a lot of the same, uh, if not all the same benefits uh, of yours. That would be, uh, you know, that, that's kind of what I would say to, to close it out. Well, the nice thing about uh, both of our systems is that it's probably going to be a while before we find divergent paths, right? Yeah, I think that ultimately that that is something that the market socialists and the social democrats of the world can certainly agree on is that um you know we might probably fundamentally be on the same road right it's just that 
um, you know, I might be done after, you know, uh, after a 10K, uh, whereas you might want to run the full marathon, right? <laughs> Not <laughs> but, with this body. You know, we, but yeah, that's the goal. Oh, um, well, we've got a lot fair. of work to do with, get, with, getting, um, with getting evidence on, you know, the implementation of this stuff. I would like to see more instances of sort of incremental worker ownership applied to get more data from it. Um, but ideologically, there is an irreconcilable difference. Um, Maybe time will change people's perspectives on this. I guess we'll see. Okay. And uh, I've, got some, I've got some closing questions for you. Hit me. Okay. Um, when are you going to go on the well-known and popular and, 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 and not infamous, but, but extraordinary podcast known as Alcoholics, hosted by Kaiosan and Spectre? Um, I've been on a podcasting bent lately. Let me see. Alcoholitics. Uh, is, it, is that a second O or a second I? Oh, I see. Second I. Okay, let's see. Terrain makes... You know, I think I'd be really bad at this because I've gotten drunk like maybe three times in the past year. I feel like, um, I feel like I have to do some, some studying. Yeah, drinking is is not a, a strict requirement, and I'm I'm not part of the show. They just uh, they uh, they were sure to ask, you know, oh, ask Vosh to to, oh, to should, come on they, our show. If um, they email me, I I love popping on people's podcasts. Usually, I just do it on my days off, like because they record locally. Uh, yeah. All right, you heard it there, uh, Kayo and Inspector. Just email Vosh. To be fair, that's how uh, that's how I got uh, to to debate Vosh a couple times. Um, and uh, uh, the the second uh, question that I had is, uh, can I uh, tell the people to subscribe to me. Yeah, yeah of course. Absolutely. I've All actually right. seen a couple well, of your every... debates on the aforementioned off days. Yeah, well, that's, you know, you, you heard it there, folks. Uh, Vosh, number one Econoboy fan, watching uh, watching my debates offline. You know, that is actually, that does mean a lot because I'm sure that uh, you don't, uh, similar to like other content creators, like, you know, I'm, I'm sure you, you probably don't watch a lot of streams or content uh, yourself necessarily. Um, so that, that, that does actually mean something. So if, you know, if anyone's interested, um, I am a filthy social Democrat and a capitalist, uh, but like Vosh said, uh, we, we do agree fundamentally on many policies. So if you're interested in a policy analysis, uh, that I do, I debate conservatives, I debate socialists, uh, and I do a lot of sort of, you know, just generic sort of economic, uh, discussions. I'm actually doing a video on social wealth funds, which, um, you know, most capitalists and socialists can oftentimes, uh, you know, end up liking, uh, and that video is probably going to be about 15 or 20 minutes long or something like that. Just talking about what social wealth funds are. That's an example of the type of informative content, uh, that Sub I do. So Left keeps telling me to learn about social wealth funds. And every time I look at the page that he linked me like a year ago, my eyes glaze over. So maybe that'd be a good way for me to learn as well. <laughs> you don't, you don't, uh, I guess, uh, you're, you're not as interested in social wealth funds. Is that it? Uh, it's, it's, um, it's not as bloody. Now, it doesn't confer the kind of worker control I get hard over. Um, but no, for, no, it does, it does look well, good. It do, it does look good. Yeah. I'm being, I'm being, um, uh, uh, uh content. I'm, I'm being antagonistic right now. Yes, they do look nice. Well, I don't know. I mean, could, could I ask you about that though? Uh, about what I get hard over or about, uh, social well, not, <laughs> no, about, uh, yeah, about, well, really about Norway specifically, because, mm -hmm. you know, I actually think you could, and I'm not a socialist to be fair, but I think you could actually make, um, so let me, let me, let me caveat this. If your requirement of socialism is that there need, there, there cannot be any capital ownership, Norway does not qualify as a socialist country. Um, however, um, if you view socialism as more of a spectrum, like many do, right, where you can either be 
more socialist or more capitalist or in between somewhere in there. Um, I think there's actually a very strong argument that Norway is functionally a socialist economy in many respects. Um, can I give you a few of those respects and see what your reaction is? Go for it. Okay, so number one, uh, 40% of the GDP is collected and distributed in the form of taxation under a democratic framework. So that's uh, nearly half the economy right there. Um, in, a, in 2020, government spending as a percent of the GDP was a majority of the economy. Um, around 60% of country wealth is collectivized with the uh, social wealth fund. If you don't include household wealth, um, like house wealth, um, that goes up to 76%. Um, this is in addition to uh, around 30% of the Oslo uh, stock market is uh, actually owned by the government, either in the form of state-owned enterprises or their domestic social wealth fund. Um, and a, uh, a majority of people are represented by unions. Two-thirds of employees are covered by collective bargaining agreements. I mean, would, that's, that sounds like a fairly collectivized economy to me. It sounds nice, but there are still two economic classes, right? It's, it's, it's just, it's one of those, it's one of those supplemental things where I guess in terms of socialism for me, it's, People talk about socialism like it's an economic ideology, but the more I think about it, the more I feel like that might be misplaced. It's a political ideology with economic prerequisites. And I feel like at the, at the end of the day, as long as capital ownership persists, the fundamental power differential between the two classes will be maintained. Though, of course, the, the social welfare um, is, is an admirable goal. America sucks quite a bit more than those countries because we have less of it <laughs> in that respect at least um i think there's some stuff to learn there if nothing else you know the systems by which you could um maintain a strong social welfare system would still be necessary in a uh you know uh, mm -hmm. um uh, uh, market uh, socialism right i mean you'd still have to you, yep. you would yeah you would still have to know how to properly distribute that wealth and tax and what have you so yeah what if every company was owned by a social wealth fund. So the, so the idea would be that capital is ultimately owned by the government, but operationally businesses are private. Would this be a socialist system? Um, I don't think so because of the, uh, the power those groups could leverage. Even if they're owned monetarily by the government, if you're not democratically electing people within those corporations, the person at the top still has leverage they can use to beckon uh, government benefits. They wouldn't be a bourgeois mm -hmm. in the Marxian sense, but you know, if, if you have control over like, you know, a uh, Norwegian oil company, um, even, and it's not a democratically elected fashion, you could go to the government, you know, appropriately leverage your wealth and power to procure benefits for yourself. Whereas if it's a democratically elected system, you could still do so, uh, uh, you know, not as, as an owner, um, but as a democratically elected representative, but you would do so alone, singly, as a representative of your own mm -hmm. institution, rather than as a member of a, of a controlling, uh, undemocratically, you know, uh, managed mm -hmm. firm. Sorry, I'm rambling really so hard because I got like no sleep. I apologize. My my brain is faltering. <laughs> okay. So it's it's not it's it's not enough to democratize capital um, or the government. You it really is. You 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 have under your system. You have to democratize the individual workplaces um, as a as a prerequisite uh, for your system to be considered socialist. I don't think anyone should be able to have any kind of meaningful power without them being able to be voted out if people underneath them get angry. Right. Well, yeah, it sounds. Well, yeah, that's. It sounds like you agree with with uh, 
with what I said. Um, yeah, yeah, makes, I, uh, yeah. I agree. I agree with the statement that you just levied. Yes, I feel that I feel the democracy is a, is a necessary characteristic. You know, um, because I can imagine, for example, in in noted economic text 1984. You know, um, technically the firms people work out there aren't privately owned by anyone, right? I mean, there are a great many. They wouldn't call them businesses, I suppose. The institutions that they work at uh, for the for the middle party, or what's it called, the lower party, was the lesser party, uh, the whatever Winston worked for. Anyway, nobody owns it, of course, but people are still in charge of those systems, and you can maintain, in the worst scenario, you know, a kind of bourgeois um, by implication, which is what the Soviet Union had, right? Technically, nobody owned those factories, but party members managed them. And the only people who can vote in party members for that management position are other party members. So, you know, mm -hmm. it might as well be a shareholder board. Are you still an anarchist? Like or, did, th or have you like, kind of... I'd like to think I am. The term just gets people angry at me, though, so I usually just go by libertarian oh. socialist. <laughs> okay, I got you. No, I... I uh... I've, uh, I, I was, I was, you haven't talked about, uh, that in a while. Um, and, uh, I've been, I've, I've been campaigning to try and get a talk with, uh, Zoe Baker, not, not necessarily a debate, but I think, um, I would really just, uh, she seems like a, quite a, quite a well-read anarchist, whereas a lot of anarchists seem to, it's kind of that anarchism is when there's no bedtime kind of thing. And I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, that Zo Zoe probably, Baker. probably not is remarkably yeah, well-read. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, Zoe Baker's remarkably well-read. Certainly smarter than I am. I, I would I would watch any conversation that you had with her. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to make it happen. She's, she's just recently finished a PhD, so I, 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 I can't blame her if she's uh, just wants to uh, wind down a little bit. Obviously, that's quite a, a difficult thing to do. Um, it's been a busy but, few months, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, all right. I mean, all right, Vash. It was good talking to you. I don't have anything else. Like I said, um, uh, you know, I think we agree on many, uh, most most every prescription besides the the most, uh, uh, so you could say, aggressive ones uh, on, on on your part. Right, but, right. It, um, it's the ideological divide is always going to be the big uh, truncation there at the end. I think with a principled opposition yeah. to the, the bourgeois. But no, well, I, I really appreciate as, the conversation. Thank you for coming on. Uh, I was gonna. Well, you're you're welcome. As as Lonerbox once said, a wise man, uh, liberals were tragically born without imaginations. So uh, my my liberal sensibilities <laughs> prevent me from uh, from advocating for such a, a a structural change. But uh, but no, it was fun coming on. Like I said to the audience, um, if you're interested in economic discussions like these, uh, you can subscribe to uh, you know my channel, Econoboy, on YouTube. Um, and it was a good uh, a good round two, Vosh. Let's uh, let's hope we can find something for round three one of these days yeah we'll debate um hmm, that would be a good thing did you like the new matrix movie um well i actually i thought it was better than most uh but it wasn't uh i mean it was just okay you know it wasn't a disaster or anything but it wasn't people were expecting a lot out of it i haven't seen it i'll construct my opinions to be the opposite of yours and we'll battle over that well i i do have to warn you um well, you know, you know, never mind. No, no preconceived notions. Just go in blind on it. it's on HBO Max. Uh, I thought it was okay. I'd give it a five out of ten. If I had to recommend a, an absolutely banger of a TV show, um, it is going to have to be Mister In Between on Hulu. I'm sure you've got a Hulu account. Best TV show no one's talking about or gives a shit about. Really, really good show though. Um, uh, oh goodness, um, I, I have one more thing. Uh, do you play Civilization?
I played Civ 4 for a long time when I was younger. The only Civ game I ever liked. Well, if you are interested, um, a content creator by the name of Taftage is uh, trying to organize a civilization content creator showdown of which I am uh, a part. And she and I are pretty fucking good at civilization, Vosh. So don't want to... Civ 5, not 4, but you know, same thing. Gotcha. Civ 5 was god-awful at release, um, but I hear they fixed it up a bunch <laughs> afterwards, so... Um, well, I'll be sure to take a look. I, I look forward to the degenerate one-unit-per-tile rule, uh, encouraging good and interesting gameplay. Hell yeah. All right, bud. Talk to you later. It was a good talk. Have a wonderful day. Night. Whatever. You too. Bye. Okay. Sorry. I, my, I'm so tired, and I'm working off of I'm working off so little sleep. If I came off like like weird or that, I I apologize. It wasn't my intention. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. Okay. Oh God. Okay. So for any of you who are wondering why the conversation that I just had went differently from a lot of conversations that I've had on this subject before, the issue is I always we always talk about the empirics. Well, uh, can worker cooperatives perform at an equal level to traditional firms? Whatever, whatever. But I usually t I usually move away from talking about the moral prescription, the need to mandate them. And, uh, and the, pr the reason for that is because it's an ideological thing and it can't be borne out in numbers as much. You have to like build, you have to talk like the narrative of history, class conflict, whatever. And that's the real reason I care about this. You know, um, I wouldn't be so like, I wouldn't be so like heavy on worker cooperatives. It was just like, oh, well, it'll make the line go up faster, you know? Um, yeah. So that's, that's the basic idea for me. So for anyone, for anyone who wants a summary of my positions on this, okay, they're fundamentally as far, follows, okay? Worker cooperatives, in, in my mind, the mandate for all worker cooperatives, okay, so the, everything above a given, like, minimal size is a worker cooperative. The idea for me is this, okay? First of all, I think it would be better to their workers. I think, I think that bears out okay, you know? However marginally, I think it would work out. I think we can manage... The financing as well, if it was mandated, because you would just have non-controlling shares if, when you got rid of controlling shares as a concept, because controlling shares confers capital ownership upon a person. Okay, so that's simple enough. Ideologically, a lot of the issues we have is that the most powerful people in every capitalist country are usually people who have very different interests to the vast majority of the citizens of that country. Okay, this is the fundamental divide between the bourgeois and the working class. This divide is as evident today as it was 200 years ago, though it's been abstracted from view in a number of ways. Uh, nowadays, people don't know their CEOs as well as they know their immediate managers. We're not in the day of the robber barons the way we used to, and the Pinkertons don't literally come and gun down union workers the way they used to as well. But the fundamental power relationship has stayed the same, because you know what's way, way, way more effective than hiring the Pinkertons? Uh, going golfing with with Murdoch and having Murdoch tell his writers tell his uh you know broadcasters um that actually it make being in a union makes you gay you know like like that like that works better you know direct conflict bloodshed direct violence that is an ineffective and inefficient way of ensuring control of the working class uh but uh you know manufactured consent uh, shared class interest between the bourgeois. Uh, these are very, very effective ways of, uh, of, of, of managing your material interest for a number of reasons. If you can convince people to vote against their interest, then there's no issue, right? Hey, people want 
us to not deal with climate change, and they're voting to not deal with climate change. Everything's fine. Well, of course, no, it's not, you know. The reason people vote the way they do is because of the info they're supplied, and the info they're supplied is going to be biased by the institutions that not only produce that information, but present it. Uh, basic manufacturing consent stuff, you know? And you look all over the world, and, like, it seems like, and I understand this comes across like me, like, building a grand historical narrative, because I totally am, but I really feel like you can empirically bear this out. Basically, all problems in general are caused by people in power with different interests to the people who suffer the consequences of their behavior. If you take a look at like almost every massacre, holocaust, war, every like uh, manufacturing failure, kids being poisoned by lead, like everything, like everything, right? Um, it was slavery, like, like everything. It's people with different sets of interests and the person with more power gets to do their set of interests. That's like everything. That's like everything everywhere, you know? And the thing is, you can't get rid of hierarchy through democracy, but you can weaken it, right? Because there's still a hierarchy in a democratic government, even if you had some super advanced anarchist one or whatever, whatever like crazy, super like commune, elected board, rep whatever fucking term you want for it, you know, that person would still have more power than the average individual. But the difference is not as great as the difference between like Ho Chi Minh and an average North Korean citizen, right? You know what I mean? You get what I'm talking about, right? Like democracy doesn't fix the problem of hierarchy, but it mitigates it substantially. And you mitigate it by making sure that the people on top, did I say Vietnamese? I'm sorry, dude. The memes were so fucking good with Luna Oi. I'm so sorry. North Korea. Um, I don't think Ho Chi Minh had any power over the North Vietnamese. Just clarifying, okay? Um, like, the problem with hierarchy is still there. Did I do it again? Did I do it again? Guys, I slept for two hours. I just, listen. You said North Korea? Ho Chi Minh was in Korea. I, wait, Ho Chi Minh was in Vietnam. No, the mix-up was the other way. I meant to say fucking the other guy. Not Ho Chi Minh, Ho, no, the other guy, um, the bad guy, Kim Il, Kim Jong-un, yeah, Jesus, I'm really tired, I've done two hours of sleep, okay, I'm trying, I'm firing on all cylinders right now, okay, and I'm racist, no I'm not, thank you, listen, please listen, please, please, please listen, okay, please listen to me, okay, you can't get rid of hierarchy through democracy, but democracy mitigates hierarchy, and the way you mitigate it is by trying to ensure that people with different levels of power have the same material interests, okay? Now, if Kim Jong-un wants to, like, just kill a guy, okay? Like, what can the people of, of North Korea do? What can they do? Like, nothing, right? There's, like, no relationship. What did I misspeak on? You know what? We're just gonna... Okay, forget the analogy. Forget the analogy. We're just going to use abstractions, okay? If an authoritarian wants to do a thing, there's not much that the citizens beneath them can do about it. They have different material interests, okay? But hypothetically, in a democracy, you know, politicians have to be popular in order to be re-elected or elected in the first place, right? 
So in order for them to be popular, they have to do things that people who vote for them like. And that is a shared material interest. It is in the material interest, hypothetically, of a leader in a democratic country to do things that the regular people want. Because that's how you get elected, right? Now, that's not a perfect system, but it's better than an authoritarian government. It's better than just a dictatorship, okay? And that's what I'm talking about with regards to the economy, okay? The fundamental issue here is one of hierarchy. The bourgeois right now are a, a distinct class with distinct class interests. Are you really explaining why democracy is good? Yes, because people often don't know. Democracy is good, not just because it's like a cool new modern idea or because it's like more fair or whatever, but because the, the drive to make systems better is to make sure people at the top and people at the bottom are pushing in the same direction, not opposite directions. Opposite directions causes suffering and tension. It prevents transparency and creates a lack of accountability. It destroys people and it destroys systems. Pushing in the same direction is a good thing. Okay, And the issue is, with economic autocracy, there is literally no way for us to meaningfully check the interests of the bourgeois, the people in power, outside of voting with your wallet, which is a traditional liberal response. Oh, you don't like that Jeff Bezos is so powerful that his decision to build new plants can make or break entire like political deals? You don't like the fact that he's like the bedrock of like the fucking modern American economy? Just don't buy from the gajillion dollar economy. You know, like, yeah, like bullshit like that. Clearly that doesn't work. Boycotts don't work unless they're very local and very, very targeted, you know? Why the bourgeois want to destroy the world? The bourgeois don't want to destroy the world. That's the thing you have to understand. The bourgeois buy their own bullshit. Do you think that the monarchies of, of Europe thought that they were just like really cruel like assholes? They didn't. Read Machiavellian literature, okay? Because that's what they read. The, the leaders back in like feudal Europe, for the most part, thought that they were A, ascribed by the divine right of kings, and B, they thought that the average peasant through blood was incapable of managing their own affairs and that it was the job of a monarch to rule the, the affairs of the realm because nobody else could do it. Does that make sense? Does that, does that make sense? You, you buy the, the ideology that legitimizes your reign, okay? So the monarchs don't just sit there in their throne thinking, haha, I'm evil, we could have a democracy, but I refuse to. There were people back during the 18th century that legitimately believed that democracy couldn't work because the serfs, the peasantry, were not capable of managing their own affairs. That wasn't just evil people who were super wealthy, like cackling and like rubbing their hands together or whatever. That was a common idea. And it was a commonly held idea by the peasantry as well. Oftentimes, the peasantry legitimately felt like, you know, sure, there are problems, but you need a king. You need a queen. People believed in uh, 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 the people above them, often, because what alternative was there? That was the system they lived in. And systems self-perpetuate. The ideology of the system feeds into the system's legitimacy, and the system produces the ideology that will be used to justify it. The same thing happened with slavery, didn't it? Which came first, guys? Slavery or modern scientific racism? The answer is the former. The transatlantic slave trade came about, and people were like, oh, we sure are doing awful shit right now. I hope 
we can invent an ideological and pseudoscientific system that justifies this. And then, wow, they found one, if you can believe it. Simplifying a bit, but yeah. Uh, post hoc justification, big problem, okay? And right now, here in America, we have the same basic issue with perceived meritocracy. It's okay that the ultra-wealthy have all this power, because you can do it too. If you're very good and smart, you can be the next Jeff Bezos. When, of course, you can't. But if you don't become the next Jeff Bezos, they get to say, well, it's just because you weren't good enough. We live in a meritocracy, so anyone with power must necessarily deserve that power. The ideology justifies the system, and the system produces the ideology. And the bourgeois, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, are exactly the same, okay? Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos don't think they're evil. They think they're better than you. That's it. It's that simple. They think they're smarter, more driven, more capable, more willing to make the difficult choices. They think that they're... A uh, lot in life is, oh, sure, maybe it's partly due to luck and circumstances. They're not, they don't believe in like, well, they don't necessarily believe in the divine right to rule. Maybe some of them do, but, you know, they'll acknowledge some, you know, fortune. They'll go on their book tours and interviews and they'll acknowledge this. But deep down, internally, fundamentally, they believe very deeply in two basic things, okay? Meritocracy and individualism. Meritocracy is what brought them there, and individualism is the reason why they can't understand the relationship between their personal power and the broader institutional systems that not only brought them to where they are now, but that they have the ability to change directly. I genuinely think that your average ultra-wealthy billionaire, who is very class-conscious in the sense that they will promote the interests of the bourgeois and they will fight for the interests of the bourgeois and so on, um, I genuinely think that even though they act in their class interest, they are as aware of their class interest as the average worker is. That the average bourgeois, you know, Yale uh, graduate student, whatever, um, probably is acting out of the same intuitive, reflective expression of their ideology uh, that a worker is. That, they, that people are unconscious, but circumstances, by which I mean disproportionate power, align the unconscious class advocacy of the bourgeois with their own interests. Whereas, because the workers are not in power, their unconscious class interest uh, is not aligned with their material interest. Does that make sense? Please, please God, I feel like that was a good point. Why is Vosh saying ideology in a strange way? Because it's something Slavoj Žižek is known for saying, and he has a funny Slovakian accent, okay? Does what I say make sense? I know I'm very tired, but I feel like this is very important, okay? Okay, hopefully everyone gets that. So that's the reason why fundamentally this is an ideological divide, and that's why this debate went the way that it did. Because normally, I talk about the empirics. Here's a study saying worker co-ops are good for people. Here's a study saying they make money, blah, 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 blah. But that's not why I like worker co-ops. I like worker co-ops for the same reason that I would have liked the abolition of the monarchy. I like worker co-ops for the same reason that I would have supported, you know, the, the any system that would ameliorate these these distinctions. 